And so tonight, harvest judgment of God, and a little bit of preview, if you will, of what we'll get to in great detail when we get to chapter 16. As we finish up chapter 14 tonight, beautiful, beautiful picture of why what we do as we celebrate Easter is so important. Because the grace of God is sufficient, and he provided that through the death of his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him, Jesus, doesn't have to worry about this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the incredible power of the cross. Lord, that we who have believed on the only begotten Son will be saved. Your word is clear. That if we're here, these days should unfold that we've been reading about, we'll be snatched away, Lord, carried off to the glories of heaven, only to return again to rule and reign with you for a thousand years. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless your word. Instruct us with it. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 14 here, in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on that cloud sat one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the name for Jesus. Daniel was the first to mention it. And so here it is that we have the Son of Man riding on the cloud, having his head on his head a golden crown. That a golden crown is the victor's crown. And in his hand a sharp sickle. And here's where it begins to unfold that God will one day do exactly what he declared he would do, which is to judge sin and do it with finiteness. Right now, those who are on this earth live in the age of grace. It's a time when God has provided the remedy for mankind's ailment. And in that remedy, he's given us opportunity to believe, to be saved, to be transformed, changed, and to have our eternity secure in Jesus. But there is coming a time when God will say, and only he knows when it is, that enough is enough. Man will no longer be allowed to do as he pleases. Rebellion will end. Sin will end. And mankind, along with the armies that the Antichrist has assembled, will assemble for one last great battle against God. And in his hand is a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple... And we'll notice in verse 17 where this temple is. We've already been told previously, picturing the temple that is still in heaven, crying aloud with a voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel, verse 17 says, came out of the temple which is in heaven. And he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried out with a loud voice unto him who had the sharp sickle, saying, 
Thrust your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for grapes are fully ripe. And so the angel thrust his sickle to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it to the great wine, wine, the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now it's important that you understand that God has no desire to pour out his wrath on mankind. It's not what he wants to do. But it is what he must do at some point in time. Because God is truly just. If God is absolutely holy, then he cannot allow sin to remain. And so his answer to this point up to now has been grace. Believe, receive, be saved. But his answer someday will to be to take away man's capacity to sin at all. So that great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trampled outside the city. And notice this is outside of the city. It's referring to Jerusalem. And the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,000 600 furlongs. And so we really begin to see that God has put an end to the struggle that's been against him. And mankind today struggles with being responsible to God. People don't like it. Matter of fact, it's one of the things that I get into frequent discussions with people about. Well, you know, if there is a God, then... I still want to be able to do what I want to be able to do. And, well, that's your right, that's your privilege, that's called choice. But God's response is to that. You can either take the remedy to that sin, or you can keep the consequences of it. And Paul wrote to the church at Rome and said, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life eternal. So you can have the free gift, or you can have the wages. You can have the broad road that leads to destruction or the narrow road that leads to righteousness. You can go through uh, that narrow gate or you can go through the broad way. God continues to deal with us in grace as we sit here tonight. And so as we conclude this chapter, these two illustrations are going to make a central point. And that central point is God's judgment will come. It will be complete, it will be severe, and so the choice is this. It's always been this. It was this in the encampment of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember the bronze serpent? As God raised up a bronze serpent in the middle of the encampment of the children of Israel, and he said, all you need to do is look upon that and live. Turn and live. But if you won't look to it, you won't live. Mankind has to choose. And by not choosing, you have chosen. You see, some people try and escape this whole thought process by saying, Well, I haven't really chosen whom I'm going to serve. Oh, I'd never serve Satan. But by not choosing God, you have chosen to serve the enemy. Jesus made that clear. You may not see it, you may not think it, you may not like it, but Scripture's clear. 
You see, the final rebellion against God is going to take place one day. And tonight we get both the, the reason for it and the horror of that battle that's going to be the battle of Armageddon. I'll remind you that that word is only used one time in Scripture. And it comes up in Revelation chapter 16. So it's ahead of us a little bit. But this is simply a preview. It's what God's doing. He's saying, okay, you've chosen. You can pick. You can choose. You can do as you please. God is a genteel God in that sense. You know, we look back towards those times in human history where, where things were a little more uh, formal, if you will. I grew up in a day and time where you called your parents sir and ma'am. And if you didn't, uh, sometimes parts of your face got very red. There was, a, there was a little more structure in our world. And when you went to school, uh, you honored your teacher, anyone who had authority. If my dad had ever caught me back-talking a police officer, the police officer wouldn't have to harm me. My dad would harm me. It's the way it was. Not so sure it isn't actually better that it's that way now. But God has allowed us grace. He's allowed us to back-talk him. He's given us the opportunity to look at God the Father in the face and say, Mm-mm. I don't want to do that. I want to do things my way. Now, for those of us who have children, you know those growing experiences in your children's life where you first begin to give them a little bit of liberty. Those of you that have children say, yeah. You know that time. You know, the first time you hold the car keys out and you drop it into their hand and you're like, oh God, preserve me. Preserve them. You give them a little bit of latitude. And and if things are well, then that child takes that latitude, that privilege, that ability to do the wrong thing. Because once you get in that car, you can do whatever you want, right? I remember, isn't it weird how kids now today, they don't even want to get their driver's license, it seems like. My day and time, 15 and a half, you were at the DMV. So I got another three hours. Can I get my license? Got that learner's permit. You hang on to it for six months. You get, you're, you're 16 years old and one minute and you're back to getting your license. But it had responsibility. And that responsibility gave you some privileges. Man has had that from God. God has said, here are the keys to my world. Drive it carefully and cautiously. Here's the keys to human relationship. Drive it carefully and cautiously. Here's the keys to your own life. Drive it carefully and cautiously. You make the decisions where you're going to go. You make the decisions as to what you'll do with the information that you have. God has given you the keys to this life. And it's up to you to drive responsibly. 
And in that, like all parents, the first time there's a little dent in the car, you don't go out and kill your kids. Amen? You don't go beat your children. You think back of the day and time when you put the first dent in your car and you act in grace, right? At least most of us do. You see, God in the age of grace is responding in grace. And he says, Jeff, please don't drive that car there ever again. And sure enough, a couple of friends get in the car. Hey, let's go here. And you're like, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't. But you drive there anyway. This is called forgiveness. And you come back to your heavenly father. And he looks you and you, Jeff, did you drive down that road? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, this time it's going to cost you. You're on restriction now. You see, you do that over and over and over and over and over again. The, The reason that your father says those things to you is he knows that ultimately you might harm yourself and someone else. And so the restrictions get tighter and tighter and tighter. And so it is with the child of God. God starts out speaking to us and in grace. When you first get saved, you're just you're doing good to not be, you know, blasted every day. You're doing good not to be smoking dope every day. You're doing good to maybe not be as as deeply in that relationship as you were before that isn't pleasing to him. But as you grow in grace, God says, look, I'm pulling the the responsibility a little bit tighter and with it is going to come a penalty. And eventually, God is going to say, you don't get to choose anymore. You've had all the choosing you can do. That time is over. You should have learned by now how to drive the car responsibly. That time is coming for mankind. We should have, by now, learned how to drive the car of humanity, the car of this world, responsibly. But when you look around the world, we're not very responsible drivers, are we? How do people load up bombs filled with nails and ball bearings and put them into a waiting room of an airport or a bus station and blow up their fellow human beings? Make no mistake, God didn't miss that. And he is not going to tarry forever with these vile, evil, despicable people. He's going to one day say, no more. Right now there's an opportunity to repent and to turn. But eventually, God's going to say, Enough. And that final battle will be a reaping of the earth. And there will be only one side that you want to be on, and that'll be God's side. There'll be no middle ground. The wine vat will be full of overripe grapes. For those who have rejected Christ, that judgment absolutely is coming. You know, people now have turned to all kinds of things to to thwart 
that consciousness that they have to respond to God. And, and generally, we call them isms. A lot of them are religion. You, you, you could look at Buddhism or Islam or Mormonism or Scientology or environmentalism, humanism, hedonism. There's all kinds of isms that mankind uses to say, look, God, I've got this under control. I'm one of these. God, in grace, is allowing mankind to think what he wants to think right now. But he's provided enough information that man should know better. But we've disregarded it. In John chapter 5, there in verse 22, it begins this way, For the Father judges no one. Do you realize what that says? You judge yourself. You choose this day whom you're going to serve. When God finally judges, it isn't really because he's judged you, it's because you've judged you. You've said with your actions, you've said with your life, you have done what you wanted to do, you have chosen by choosing the path that you take. But has committed all the judgment to the Son. So the path is through Jesus the Son. So if you choose Jesus, you've chosen the right way. If you don't choose Jesus, you've chosen the wrong way. That's why there is only one name under heaven, whereby men may be saved. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. But the judgment's going to belong to Jesus. One day he's going to take the sickle out and say, enough. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And has given him all authority to execute judgment also. Because he is the Son of Man. What Jesus did that final week of his life, that we will celebrate tomorrow, his death on the cross, and we will celebrate on Sunday his resurrection. What Jesus Christ has done is sufficient to save all of mankind. One only need believe. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can myself do nothing, but as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You see, the Father and the Son are like this. And righteousness is who Jesus is. He's given the ability in receiving what he did for us on the cross to be righteous ourselves, not because we're righteous, but because he is righteous in our place. He paid the price for us. He's given us life. He's atoned for my sin. He's redeemed me. He bought me back. I was in slavery to sin, and Jesus paid the price of my sin. I didn't pay my price. I accepted the price he paid for me. I said, Jesus, I believe in you. I can't take care of my own debt. 
you took care of my debt, and I receive that as payment. I'm good. You see, unfortunately, not everyone will choose to receive Christ. Not everyone gets it. It's hard for us to comprehend, and this is one of the great discussions that you will have as you talk to people about the Lord Jesus. Because people have a tough time with a God who is love, because God declares of himself, John's gospel declares it, John's letters declare it, that God actually is love. How can a God of love also be a God who's going to pour out his wrath? It sounds incongruous. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can God be love and God be wrathful and judgmental and all of those things which we find here in the book of Revelation? How can that possibly happen? And yet God is perfectly both of those things. God is perfectly love and he is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly love and he's perfectly judgmental. He's perfectly love and he's even perfect in his wrath. No one will ever experience the wrath of God who has not chosen themselves to do so. That's how you'll experience it. You will have made a conscious decision to not receive the sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary's cross for you. That's how you'll receive the wrath of God. Not because God says, well, you know, you just ran out of time. You weren't quite quick enough on the uptake. No, you will have made a conscious choice. And how God works all that out in our minds and his plans, is why his ways are above our ways. And we cannot know them. I, I don't know the mind of God and its finiteness. I know some of the things that he shared with us. But one day, with absolute perfection of both love and wrath, God is going to judge this earth. And everyone who's on it. Everyone who's left at that time. And there won't be a single one lost who's supposed to be saved. And there won't be a single one damned who isn't supposed to be. We have a tough time with that. But God is perfect. I don't want to offend anybody. But there's an awful lot of PC churches out there that leave out the side of God's wrath. You can't take away the wrath of God and leave the love of God intact. Because you can't be saved from something that you won't admit that you are, which is a sinner. Amen? You, you can't have forgiveness without repentance. And you can't have repentance unless your sins are judged at the cross. And so if you don't get the whole package, you haven't actually believed on the name that saves. Because if you think you can keep your sin and do whatever you want with your life after Christ has paid for it, you're mistaken. Now, do you do that as a way to be saved? Of course not. But if you're really a child of God, you're going to forsake sin. You may not do it perfectly, and you probably won't do it completely while you're still walking on this earth, but it will be your goal.
That's why God can perfectly judge sin. Because he's offered his own son to take care of the problem. We have a lot of churches, like the Community Church of Joy in Glendale, Arizona. The pastor of that church said this. He said, you know, I've discovered in my teaching that people are no longer interested in traditional doctrines like justification, sanctification, and redemption. They're only interested in love. Dear God, help that church. Because the moment a pastor isn't interested in justification, I have been made just as if I had not sinned because my sins were put on Jesus. That's what that means. Sanctification means to become more saint-like. To be sanctified is a good way to look at it. In other words, made into the image of Jesus. If that doesn't matter to you, if that isn't a doctrine we preach in this church, go go to some other church. The moment we stop teaching justification and we stop teaching sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, and the moment we stop teaching redemption, that means that the price on my head was paid by somebody else. Jesus. Amen? You, You see, in love, God's provided a way for those things to happen. But they're still supposed to happen. You can't take away the things that are deeply, in, in, in many ways, indicative of who we are in Christ. If I am saved, if I am redeemed, then I absolutely am justified. And I absolutely will be sanctified. And it'll end when I finally get to heaven. I'm going to be completely sanctified. That's going to be awesome. You see what people don't like that. They don't like the word Repent. Can I remind you that Jesus used the word repent? Jesus used the word repent in its perfect context. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. And now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel that saves. Amen? It's what it is. It's his own story. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Did you notice which one's first? Our repentance. Repentance comes before believing. You can't believe without repenting. You can't say, well, I'm keeping my sin and I want Jesus to. That's why Easter is so important. Easter brings us first to the cross, amen? Amen. It brings us to the cross before it brings us to the tomb. Amen? If you don't go to the cross, you can't get to the tomb. Because it was the cross that killed Jesus, that put him in the grave, that put him in the tomb, that brought him forth in new life. Amen? you got to come to the cross first. You have to be dead to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Didn't say you keep you and add me to you. He said, You become me. Oh, behold, all things are passing away. They've become new. You see, mankind doesn't like that message. It's too exclusive. I don't want to hear that. 
is love absolutely by grace. It's free, it's rich, it's deep, but his judgment is also absolutely, totally righteous and complete. It's perfect. Both things exist simultaneously. Don't forget that. Don't cheapen the grace of God by making it cost nothing because it cost God his only son and it cost Jesus his life. Jesus said, repent. People don't like it. They don't like the word. They hate the word. But it's coming nonetheless. And so these two things, let's unfold them just a little bit. The first is harvest judgment. And we see Jesus on this white cloud, one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. That golden crown, it's the word Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. He's been victorious. Jesus is victorious. When he said it is finished, victory. Amen? The veil in the temple, that which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, God's presence and man's dwelling place, that which was separated before, that veil was torn in two by Jesus. He's the victor. You you see... As we see these things begin to unfold, Jesus says, look, the, the time is, is ripe. John writes these things. He uses the word, it actually means overripe. It means so ripe that they're already starting to bleed. Maybe some of you have experienced that. If you've ever had a, a fruit tree where the fruit is overripe, you know that when it falls to the ground, it just begins to ooze. It, it's, it's overripe. It, it's so ripe that it's, it's not going to be any good for much longer. That is the word that's used here by John. It means to be overripe. So ripe is the earth, so ripe is mankind, that they don't have much longer before they begin to rot. And they're useless. And so it is at that time. I believe the world is pretty rotten right now. I believe when you look at the world, it's very hard to see you know, how, how we can digress a whole bunch further from where we already are. You look back at world history, and we, we've seen some heinous things over the centuries. That is for sure. But where we are today, and the depth to which, it, to which that evil has circled the globe, is at a new all-time low. Think of our own country. Do you realize that you cannot publicly display the Ten Commandments. You cannot pray at a high school football game. You cannot even send your kids to high school with a couple of ibuprofen in their pocket. But you can shout the most vile, despicable, vulgar words at the top of your lungs from any street corner in America, and it's perfectly legal as protected speech. We are a mess. It somehow is legal for groups like NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, to actually have a website to where they promote pedophilia. That somehow is protected speech. But if you put up some Ten Commandments someplace in a public place, Plan on doing some jail time. 
You don't think we're a little bit twisted? A little bit over the edge? The e-brake's been taken off and the car's rolling downhill, folks. It's a mess. Our world is a mess. You look at what's going on with the the world, the war and terror, the Middle East itself. How could people possibly put another human being in a cage, douse them with gasoline, and set them on fire? How does that ever get into anyone's mind? How could it be that you have a 31-year-old chronologically 31-year-old ruler of a nation that now possibly has the, announced this today, by the way, a miniaturized nuclear weapon that will fit on the head of a rocket. And you've got a crazy person with his finger on the button. You see, the Lord's not missing any of this. It's not sliding by. We have gay marriage legally mandated in most states now. We have people going to jail for standing for their own Christian values. They cannot do that. That's illegal. But it's perfectly legal for you to to terminate any and all pregnancies as long as you feel like you're somehow doing a greater good for yourself. And we're supposed to be the best that the world has to offer? No wonder Mark 4 tells us that the kingdom of God is like the sower and that seed's been scattered. You you see, I, I believe that ultimately... God is going to judge the earth. And as Isaiah says there in Isaiah 34, 8, look, the day of the Lord's vengeance, the, the year of recompense is nearly upon us. God is going to one day put the sickle to the earth and say enough. It's done. You've driven the car as long as you can. And you're going to kill somebody else now, so I'm taking the car keys away. And of course I'm speaking in metaphors. We have to deal with sin. We have to deal with rebellion or God will deal with it for us. So you can deal with it at the cross and be freed or you can wait and play games with God and one day he will will deal with it. Not something that you want to engage in, by the way. We're supposed to be part of the true vine. The true vine bears good fruit, amen? Amen. True vine bears good fruit. People often forget that. They think you can be grafted into the true vine and then not produce fruit at all. Or if they do produce fruit, it's rotten fruit, and that's somehow okay. It's not okay. Christians are to live lives as best as we can of holiness, of godliness, of contentment, which is great gain. Not of the very same things that we've been set free from. For the rest of the world, that's the world they know. Yet many people are attached to what I like to call the Judas branch. 
hung around with the disciples, walked with the disciples, even had a job with the disciples. And yet eventually his true colors were known. You don't want to be part of that. You see, very often we forget that the wine press is coming. And he's going to put those grapes in there. And the righteousness of Christ is going to trample those grapes. Verse 17, it says, Then another angel came out of the temple with which is in heaven, and he also had having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sickle, which would be Jesus, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for the grapes are fully ripe. And again, overripe, nearing rotten. He says they're going to be trampled. And notice what he says, and he tells you what it is. The blood came out of the wine press. And that word blood is some like to spiritualize, is not the grape juice. It's exactly the same word used everywhere else in Scripture for human blood. It's blood. And it's going to pour forth. And the distances that is, that is used here tells us what this battle is, tells us what's going on. Because it's not going to be a one-at-a-time thing. Notice the clusters. And notice they're overripe. And notice it's of the earth. It becomes very clear that this is mankind that's being harvested. This is mankind that's being put in the wine press. And what's being pressed out is blood. It's not a very pretty picture. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 63. First six verses, it says this, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? Basra was famous for a small worm that when smashed produced a scarlet red dye. One who is glorious in his apparel. And of course, we know who that glorious one is. None other than the Lord Jesus himself. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save is his name. Who's mighty to save? It's the Lord Jesus. This is Isaiah, 686 B.C., nearly 700 years before Jesus walked on this earth and almost 800 years before John wrote these words that we study in the book of Revelation. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? It's the same picture. They should have known. The world should know. I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. There's going to be a point in time when the church is home in heaven. God will supernaturally protect the majority of the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be 144,000 radical evangelists that were saved out of the Jewish people roaming all over the earth. And the whole world is going to come against Jesus. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. 
for it is their blood that sprinkled upon my garments. I've stained all of my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. You see, when Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, And then Paul picks up that picture in Romans 11 that blindness in part would come upon the nation of Israel until the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The age of grace comes to a close. They had already heard these words. It's come. But I looked and there was no one to help and I wondered if there was no one to uphold and therefore... My own arm brought forth salvation to me. My own fury sustained me, and I've trodden down the peoples. Notice now it becomes very clear. The peoples in my anger made them drunk in my fury and brought them down to the strength of their strength to the earth. You see, one day the Lord's going to say, enough. You've driven the car as far down the wrong road as you get to go. And the Lord will come and fight this battle himself. We'll get to more of this when we get to chapter 16. But what will happen one day is that wine press will result in a great final battle. When you travel to Israel today, we'll actually be stopping in our tour of the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, we'll be looking down into the Jezreel Valley, and interestingly enough, you guessed how long it is. It's about 184 miles. About 1,600 furlongs. I don't know how much human blood it takes to splash up blood to the horse's bridle line four or five feet. But God's not playing games. Little tiny area in central northern Israel today. God one day is going to do what he said he would do. He doesn't want anybody to go through it. But we have the choice today to either follow after the enemy. And Jesus said that there in Matthew 12. He says, look, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. If you're not with Christ, then you have sided with the devil, whether you like to realize it or not. And people surely will make, you know, all kinds of little, well, you know, I don't really follow after the devil. I'm not a Satanist. Well, that may well be true. That may well be true, but you have sided with his side if you have not chosen Christ. Because there's only two choices. There's not like a third choice. There isn't a door number three. There's door number one, there's door number two. And so this final battle, the battle of Armageddon, the valley of decision, the place where Yahweh judges. We get a picture of it in Joel chapter 3, and it also is not a pretty picture. You see, so very often we think that we have forever. The fact of the matter is, for most of us here tonight, you've already made the decision. You're good. God's got it. 
That grace that sets you free is also sufficient to keep you. And you're being transformed, renewed. Your minds have been shaped, changed. You've offered your life as a living sacrifice. Maybe you can do better at it. But that gracious gracious relationship that you have is, is sufficient. But for us, for Easter, tomorrow, for Good Friday... That's why we picture the cross, because that's the provision. That's the way you escape this. That's how you make this not matter. That's how you can take these chapters and say, I don't need to worry about them. I'm good to go. I got my rapture ticket, it's punched. Some of us have been around long enough. You remember those old bus tickets where you'd actually, they'd actually punch them for you, put a hole in the corner of them if they were used? How Jesus punched your ticket. It's marked heaven. You're good to go. And he punched it with his hands and with his feet, with his blood, with that crown of thorns. It was taken care of. It's sufficient for a round trip, by the way. First to heaven, then back here for a thousand years. That final battle, Joel tells us about there in Joel chapter 3. You can read it later. That valley where Yahweh judges, where God judges the people. You, You see, the blood of the cross or the blood of Armageddon is the choice for anyone who's alive right now. Those who've already left this earth, there's no decision to make. You made the decision while you're here. You can't pray for people that have gone on. And so often I hear people, well, you know, I'm praying for my Aunt Susie who already left. It's too late. You can't pray them in. You can't pray them out once they're gone. Because you have to make that decision while you're here. The blood of the cross is sufficient. And it's the way that the Lord wants us to live our lives. As we see all these things begin to unfold, we get to chapter 16, the details become more vivid. But remember what Ezekiel 18 says. He says, of the Lord, I have no pleasure that the wicked should die, says the Lord God. But that they should turn and live. And so for those that you know, the message of Easter is a message of escape. It's how you get out of even needing to think about these chapters in their negative sense. But if you have friends, you have family that don't know the Lord Jesus, how much longer the Lord's going to wait before he declares the fruit is overripe, before those angels... Announce, I don't know. I know he's going to take the church home before this happens. But I know once he does that, it's going to get infinitely more difficult to give your life to Christ. And so do it now. Why wait? The free gift of God in Christ Jesus is life eternal. You don't want to leave earth without it. 
You don't want anybody you know. You don't want anybody that you even are an acquaintance with. You don't want anybody to leave earth without that message being engraved on their heart. So I pray that that decision has been made by each of you as we gather together, bring someone who does not know the Lord. Tomorrow at noon, tomorrow at 7.30, Easter Sunday morning, we're going to give that opportunity for people to come to know Jesus. We're going to actually do that tonight. You don't want to leave earth without it. And you don't want Jesus putting the sickle to the earth with you still here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise that's been made to us to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. And Father, we thank you that for many, most, almost all of us, Lord, here tonight, we've made that decision. We know where we're going. If today were our last day here on earth, it'd be our first day in heaven. We thank you for that. I want to pray tonight if there's anyone here who's never made that decision. They have not surrendered. They haven't repented. Lord, they haven't come clean. They haven't been honest. Father, I want to pray right now that you would touch those, those lives. And Lord, as we have our eyes closed, our heads bowed, if you're here tonight, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you want to do that right now, just simply slip your hand up in the air. Just raise your hand. You can see it all over the sanctuary. I'll give you a moment. For the rest of us, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, for without the forgiveness of sin, we could never seek glory of heaven. And we thank you that we have that forgiveness by the blood of the cross. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask God that you'd make us ministers of that gospel. Pray that our Easter time would be a time of rejoicing. We bless you. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? Amen.